Well, it's been good to sing with you all this morning, this flood of truth we've been thinking about. Would you open your Bibles, please, to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read and preach through the first 10 verses of chapter 2 of 2 Peter. We've been going through this powerful little letter, and it's loaded with helpful truth for us today. I was, we, as, I was thinking as we were just singing that song about the blood of Jesus never losing its power, that I think for most of human history, the need for sacrifice was something that was pretty understood pretty well, but... Talk about concepts that if, if, if you don't see them from a biblical perspective will be pretty foreign and odd to you. Uh, if, if you're here this morning wondering why in the world we're singing about blood, what a strange thing to do if you don't see the need for sacrifice, um, for uh, blood uh, being shed because the wages of sin is death and Death is required to pay for sin. Those can be pretty foreign concepts in the 21st century in this more sophisticated era in which we live. So so my prayer is that as we go to the Word this morning, we will hear from God. And even if it defies certain perspectives that we've learned from our culture, that we will hear from God and take His perspective on things. This has been an incredibly challenging passage to prepare to preach not because i think it's hard to understand but because i think it's hard for us to accept Um, there there are certain presuppositions in our minds that we've been taught uh, for for decades now that make it very hard to accept what this passage is teaching us this passage this morning is a strong condemnation of false teaching and false teachers. And if you think about it, that's a pretty odd thing to do because so much in our culture teaches us that it doesn't really matter what you believe. Beliefs aren't the important thing. The important thing is what? Ethics, how you live, that you're a good person is what really matters. And whatever belief system you may hold to, that's nice, but that's not what's really important. What's really important is how you live on a day-to-day basis, as if there isn't a fundamental connection between what you believe and how you live on a day-to-day basis. But we do have this idea that beliefs are really not that important. Whatever you think about God, whatever you think about religion, whatever you think about spirituality and those things, that's not what really is important. You go and have a good time with all that, but what's really important is how you live on a day-to-day basis. And there's also this idea that because of belief doesn't really matter, that it's, it's sort of ridiculous to go around saying things are wrong. Let's just all tolerate one another's views and act like it doesn't really matter what you believe because it really doesn't. And so it's been said that the only heresy today is that there is heresy. Uh, That heresy actually exists is the only heresy, the only thing that really should be denounced. That, That there's any false teaching that should be denounced is the only really wrong thing that you shouldn't believe. And we've forgotten that if you affirm one thing, you necessarily deny its opposite. That, that's just how it is. But we actually think you can affirm one thing without necessarily saying no to its opposite. Which is really a crazy way to think, but that's how a lot of us think in our culture now. That you can affirm something without denying its opposite. And so I I want us to ask God this morning to teach us, even though what he teaches us this morning may defy things we hold dear or believe or have learned from our culture. I really think we're up against some major challenges in this passage this morning. This passage is not the kind the typical preacher would pick if he could just pick a passage to preach on because it's such a hard sell in our culture. So let's go to the Lord about his word now. Lord, help us. We come with all sorts of expectations of how you should be and how your ways should look. And so, Lord, as we go to your word, I pray that we would be prepared to be offended by you. And not just offended, but transformed in our thinking so that we are no longer offended, but we not just agree with you, but 
rejoice in what you think and how you are. Lord, give us the humility necessary for this. Give us uh, the ability to drop our defenses against you and your way and your word. Lord, forgive us for so often coming to you with our agendas and expectations of what you better be like if we're going to worship you. And Lord, help us to see the wisdom in who you are and your ways. Help us to rejoice in them and uh, walk in them. Lord, help us to hear the warning that you give us this morning in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Peter chapter 2, let me just remind you that this is written by the Apostle Peter. Peter the Apostle, the one who walked with Jesus, one of the three closest human beings to Jesus in his 33 years walking this planet. The Apostle Peter's writing this. He calls himself in the beginning a slave of Christ. So he's both got the authority of the Apostle Peter, but also the identification he makes of himself as a slave of Christ. Christ. He has Jesus as his master. But then he calls his audience, that includes us as the church, that we have equal standing with him, with the apostles. Our faith has given us an equality before God that doesn't give any rank among the people of God. So the apostle Peter, he says, uh, is of equal standing with us because the standing we have before God is not based on accomplishments or titles or degrees or any proof that we've earned anything. It's simply saying, I trust Christ and not myself. And he, because saving faith is our standing before God, Peter can say we're all of equal standing before him. And that's a wonderful place to start. And the, the point of this letter is mainly a strong warning and denunciation of false teaching and false teachers. And the antidote to false teaching is understanding the glory and sufficiency of Christ. And along with that, the certainty of his second coming. That needs to lead to growth in grace and knowledge of Christ. You could summarize the point of this entire letter with verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1. Let's just look there. Here's the main exhortation and affirmation of what we're to believe to be able to live out this exhortation. Chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election... For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to hear the loving heart of this pastor to his people this morning. We're going to read some hard words in chapter 2. Words that will sound so harsh to you and so judgmental maybe to you. But I want you to hear what's behind these words. It's love. It's overflowing, intense love for these people. He wants what's good for them. He wants what's best for them. He does not want them to fall. He does not want them to falter. He continues where he began. Look at verse 2. This is his goal for us. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So these are the affirmations. We have knowledge of who God is in Jesus. We have grace and peace through that knowledge and then we hold to that knowledge so we don't fall. We hold to that knowledge so that we will then be richly provided for by God and with an eternal kingdom given to us. We have an entrance into an eternal kingdom given to us. That's what he, ha- he has for us. That's what he wants for us. To hear the love, oh, we will deny what's not true, but we need to affirm what is true or else we'll miss the main point. You could also affirm what he's primarily after in chapter 3, verse 17. Just flip one page over, chapter 3, 17 of 2 Peter. Listen to the love behind chapter 2. Therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing this beforehand, take care. So it's like 
make your call, be diligent to make your calling election sure. Take this seriously. Take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. See, I don't want you to fall. I don't want you to lose your stability. But rather, what does he want for us? To grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he bursts into praise. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Do you hear what's at stake in this letter this morning? There's nothing short of your eternal destiny at stake this morning. What what we're talking about is the difference between, between heaven and hell. We're talking about the difference between living a life basking in grace and the love of God for us in Christ and knowledge of God and the rejection of that, which leads to hell. This is a serious time this morning. The the stakes couldn't be higher for us this morning. This is not peripheral. This is central. But I want you to hear the love. So to affirm the knowledge we have of God in Jesus and have grace and peace multiplied to us and therefore an entrance into eternal glory in him, we must then reject the opposite of those things. We've got to. You've got to say no to the opposite of your yes. I know that's not how we tend to think today because tolerance these days says no, say yes to everything so we can all just get along. But that, that defies reason. There's nothing that's true about that. And so let's, let's back up and say, oh, right, if I say yes to one thing, I need to say no to its opposite. And chapter two describes the opposite of what we've just been reading. This grace, this peace, this entrance into an eternal state with God. The opposite is what we find in chapter 2. So let's see what the opposite of these things is. Chapter 2, verse 1. But, let's stop right there. Anytime you see it, uh, this word that can be translated also or but, so it's a continuation of what's come before. It's, it's Jackson's passage that he wonderfully helped us understand last week. Uh, and he's saying that what Peter taught, what the apostles taught, the word of God is not the invention of human beings. The word of God is the truth of God and it's anchored in historical reality. As I was listening to Jackson's sermon, I was thinking, oh, Jackson, you are up against a massive problem in getting us to believe what you're saying because like these, these ideas I was talking about at the beginning, there's an idea that the only thing that can be truly meaningful is what you have immediate subjective experience of. But the fact of the Christian way of things is that we have life-transforming truth in things that happened thousands of years ago and we did not directly immediately experience. You may not know all of the, in the last few hundred years, majorly significant teachings in philosophy and history and in, in just ways of viewing things that make it impossible for us to have anything meaningful for our lives that happened a really long time ago. And, and there's what Lewis called chronological snobbery. There, only what's current and now is good and true. And there's this idea that history is inaccessible for anything meaningful and life-changing. And the only thing that really matters is what you immediately experience. But the fundamental assumption we find throughout the Bible is we can find life-changing truth in the testimony of those who've come before us and did have eyewitness experience with Jesus. And that's what Peter refers to when he says, I saw the transfiguration. I saw Jesus display his glory that had always been there, even though I'd gone fishing with him before and walked the shores of Galilee, I saw who he really was. Peter really did experience these things, and then we depend on his testimony. That's the basis here that that we're depending on. So when he says, but, he's saying also, in, in, in spite of all those things that are true, what happened? False prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you. 
who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And so that first sentence, I think, is talking about, uh, that first uh, clause there is talking about the false prophets that have always been true in the Old Testament. He's saying those false prophets arose among the people just as there will always be false teachers among you. And it's still happening, in other words. And who are they? Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies? Even denying the master who bought them. Bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And now he gives examples of who God is and how he feels about false teaching and how he's responded to false teaching in the past, starting with fallen angels and then giving examples from the Old Testament of Noah's day and then Sodom and Gomorrah to give us a glimpse into the character of God here. Four. In other words, what should we expect then? If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. No, in other words, if this is how God has acted in the past, what's the conclusion? Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Wow, there's a lot here. Um, but I, I, the, the outline is going to answer five questions. The outline of the message right now is going to answer five questions. And it's who, what, who, what, how. Okay? Those, those are the five questions we're going to ask, try to answer from this passage this morning. Who? Who are these false teachers? Two, what are they teaching? Three, who is God? Uh, four, what is the result of this false teaching? And five, how then should we live? Who, what, who, what, how? Yes? Okay. All right. So the first question, who? Who are these false teachers? Well, we learn from verse one that they've always been around. They are around and they will be around. Jesus actually warned us that this would be the case. He says in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus himself warned Peter. I think when Peter says this first verse here, he's got Jesus' words in his mind that he heard Jesus say. Beware. Be warned. Be aware that there will be, there will be false teachers. Don't assume everybody's just going to be teaching truth when they show up in the church. Beware of this. The Old Testament prophets warned of this. The Apostle Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that from their own midst, wolves would arise among them and tear at the sheep who were false teachers. Be aware, be cautious, be alert, he's saying. We need to heed Jesus' warning. We need to hear and heed Peter's warning and Paul's warning to us. This will be a reality. 
It'll always be until we get home to heaven. And what's true of these false teachers? I just compiled a list of descriptions of these false teachers. Here it is. The first thing is they are devious. I think that's what's meant by they secretly bring in destructive heresies. This doesn't mean they do it in private. They're very public about this. What they're not upfront about is the full nature of their teaching. They meet it out a little bit at a time. They're not giving you the full picture. They're not shooting straight with you. They're trying to approach you as a marketing expert, not as a truth teller. They want the truth to be understood that they're teaching, but it's not true. And so, for example, you've never read a book where in the introduction it says, beware, because in chapters 3, 5, and 8, there's heresy. And here are the page numbers. Look out for it. You just need to know it because it's not up front. And a lot of false teachers do this. They, they pull bait and switches. They're not up front. They're not telling you the whole deal. They're, they're selectively teaching you. And this mentality can even creep into good churches. We're, we're aware of how God's word is perceived, so, so we just neglect certain parts of it. We don't teach the whole counsel of God's word, as he said. We teach the things we know will play in Peoria, as they say, right? That, that will be accepted, will be tolerated, will be affirmed, that people will like it. And so these teachers are around, and they're devious, and they're destructive, they're heretical, they're blasphemous, they're greedy, they exploit people. They're false, they're destructive, they're deviant, they're selfish, greedy, sarcastic, cynical, bold, willful, despising authority, given to defiling passions, arrogant, like irrational animals worthy of condemnation. You hear that list and you say, well, why would anybody pay attention to them then? It's because those things aren't obvious. Those things aren't evident. They come as wolves in sheep's clothing. They're very compelling, interesting. One of the battles the apostles fought often was how popular the false teachers were and how unpopular they were. How impressive the false teachers were and how unimpressive they were from worldly standards. There's there's a compelling, uh, winsome uh, approach that draws you to false teaching and false teachers. And often what they teach is what part of us wants to hear. It feeds sinful desires and cravings and a sense of autonomy in us that's dangerous, but we like it. We need to realize the sheep-like nature of our natures. Bottom line, though, is they're not from God. And this is always true of all false teachers. They're not from God. Now, I do think a lot of false teachers actually truly believe what they teach. And they truly believe it's true. And they don't think they're being destructive. But all that is is self-deception. And because they may be self-deceived does not mean they're not responsible. They are responsible. That's clearly what is being taught here. They're responsible for what they're doing. The truth is, false teachers know better, but do it anyway. I remember I was in a class. Wayne Grudem was the professor, a professor of mine at, in grad school. And, and he was teaching on the Trinity. And a first-year seminary student was sitting right in the front row. And in the midst of this conversation on the Trinity, the student raised his hand. And he prefaced his, his comment about the Trinity by saying, Now, Dr. Grudem, I, I don't want to sound like a heretic or anything. And Grudem cut him off and said, No, 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 no. Don't worry about that. You don't know enough to be a heretic. And it sounds like an insult, but there's truth to that. Heretics know better. Heretics know the truth the apostles taught and have decided to divert from it. They know the truth as it's found, and they refuse to submit to it. They go a different route. They're responsible, and they're accountable before God for this. They should know better. They should know better. So, uh, what are they teaching? Who are these false apostles? What are they teaching is the second question. They are teaching, first, you'll notice, popular things. They are popular. Their teaching is popular. You see what it said in the beginning. Uh, denying their master, um, in verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality 
And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So they're popular. We've got to pause here. Because the, the church in the United States is obsessed with popularity. We want to be popular. In many ways, we've never left junior high. Uh, where popularity is the overwhelming need. My kids come home and I say, how was school? And most of the time, all they want to talk about is how popular they felt today. And I want to say, well, did you learn anything? <laughs> how about the academic side? Is it only the social? Is it only feeling accepted and that you have friends and people who admire you? Is, it, is that why you go to school? Well, yeah, that's actually why they go to school. Uh, but the church cannot be stuck in a junior high need to be popular, to be liked, to be approved of, especially by a culture that's running headlong away from God. And so pop, they are popular. So the, the fact is popularity, numerical uh, affirmation, is never a guarantee that something's from God. It's never a guarantee that something is right and true. And it's hard to believe that in a democracy where we've always uh, decided what's right by popular vote. That's just not true from God's perspective. Let everyone be uh, true and God a liar. God is, uh, let God be true and everyone a liar. God is the only one who has the deciding vote every time on what's true. He's, he's right, and popularity never determines truth. Now, popularity never means something's wrong either. Some people go in that direction and say, well, it's, if people like it, it must not be true. No, the, the fact is popularity or lack of it is never the test of truth. The word of God is the test of truth. And so when something's numerically successful, it doesn't mean it's wrong, but when something's numerically successful, it doesn't necessarily mean it's right. Kent Hughes came and preached Randy Grundyke's father's funeral last week, and Kent says of all the things he's done in ministry, probably the most important thing he did was write a book called Avoiding the Success Syndrome in Ministry. And it's this idea that success is defined by worldly standards of popularity and numerical and financial success. When after all, we follow the man of sorrows who had nowhere to lay his head and had friends abandon him at his point of need. And so they're popular. Take note of that. Many followed them. Uh, and as all teachers uh, that are false, they're popular, but they're also teaching a, a main message of false teachers throughout the whole Old Testament and throughout human history and they tend to have a message that says this peace peace when there is no peace we don't like to hear about our sin we don't like to hear judgments coming it's mocked now that, that judgments coming is mocked now sinners in the hands of an angry god is is a horrible puritanical version of christianity we've got to get very far away from i heard a well-known influential christian leader who was a pastor for a long time in the Midwest, uh, went, went to a school I went to, and he was interviewed recently, and he said, what is the one thing you know? Oprah Winfrey asked him that question. What's the one thing you know? If you had to boil it all down, what's the one thing you know? And he said that we're all going to be okay. We're all going to be Okay. And I immediately thought, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Judgment day is coming. We will be judged by the judge of the universe, the creator of the universe, and you tell us we're all going to be okay when a major calling of Christian ministers is to warn people to flee the wrath to come in the blood of Jesus. We're all not going to be okay if we don't flee to God for his forgiveness in Christ. That's a fundamental message of the gospel. Uh, what else do we learn about their teaching and these teachers? They're denying the second coming. That's what we found out in last week's sermon. The fundamental teaching they're denying is that Jesus is coming again. And so this is not some peripheral issue that Christians should just agree to disagree on. This is fundamental to Christian teaching. That Jesus' returning gives us the perspective of our lives that's supposed to have huge implications for the way we live every day. Massive implications for how we live. We 
affirm Jesus is coming again. And what we need to realize is the belief that Jesus isn't coming again led these leaders to then teach, so live however you want. You get to call the shots in how you live, and it leads to an immoral life. It leads to behavior that is immoral. So we've got false teaching, denying the second coming, denying judgment day, and now we have but behavior that follows that teaching. Their wrong belief led to wrong behavior, and it it was having a polluting effect on other people. And now you can understand why God and Peter are angry about this. It leads to immorality. Alexander Nisbet said this, is it not strange to see? No, he says, it is not strange to see that the most dangerous heretics have many followers. For every error being a friend of some lust. So every false idea leads to some lust it feeds, some immorality in our lives that it feeds. That's how beliefs operate. What we believe ends up determining how we live. And if we don't think we ever have to answer to God, everyone will do what's right in their own eyes. And before you know it, we will be calling evil good and good evil. And that's exactly where we are in our society. I'm just amazed how appalled people are by all the immorality and the the gross uh, dishonesty and disgusting nature of our political world these days. I just want to keep saying, what do you expect? Why would you expect this all to be any different? We've become unmoored, unanchored from God and his truth, and everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Why else would it it be any other way? When you disconnect from any sense of needing to answer to God someday, well, why wouldn't we just do whatever we want? And that's what's happening in this church. That's what's happening in our society. Sexual immorality seems to be the, the way that this false teaching was showing up the most. Why do I say that? Well, the way he describes it in verse 10. And especially those who indulge in the lusts of defiling passions and despise authority. The way he described it back in verse 2. They'll follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. I say that because the, an exam, one of the three examples he uses is Sodom and Gomorrah. Described in verse 7 as sensual conduct of the wicked. Um, And in the lusts of defiling passions is how he concludes. So I I do think the emphasis here on sexual immorality. I also say that because he's saying how crazy this is in light of the fact that Jesus bought us. He's our master. He determines what we do with our bodies. And it's the same way of talking that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says you're not your own. You were bought with a price. So what's the conclusion? Anybody know what the conclusion is? Yes, so glorify God with your body. You belong to Jesus. So what you do with your body is determined by him. Exactly. You were bought with a price, and that's got massive implications for for your sexual expression. It's got massive implications for everything in your life. And, and I do think it's important to pause here and say, why is it that sexual immorality is so often the way our sense of autonomy shows up? Well, it's so central to who we are, and it's so central to how God wants to be glorified in our lives. It's something we so easily find our significance in, find our security in, find our greatest pleasure in. So easily, our sexual expression becomes the way we find life. And we'll never find life in sexual expression. It's just a a glimpse of where we really find life, and that's an intimacy with God. And so in a culture that's given up any idea of needing to answer to anybody but ourselves in the moment for our sexuality and our sexual expression, we need to hear this warning this morning. Jesus is the master who makes all the calls in your life. He calls all the shots. He's the one in charge. He's the one in control. And whether it's pornography, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's fornication, whether it's it's lustful thoughts, whether it's adultery, whether it's entertaining all sorts of ideas throughout our day, we've got to realize the danger of feeling autonomous in our sexual expression. That's how this was showing up primarily, I believe. It's a primary way this error showed up in their lives. And in the context of 1 Corinthians, sexual immorality is a massive part of their problem. And I believe here as well. And we need to 
Be careful about this. We need to be aware of this. And so, who are these false teachers? What are they teaching? And now, who is God? We've got to think that. This is always the question we have to have more than any other as we read the Bible. No matter where we are in the Bible, who is God? Who is God in this passage? And I hope you see who he is. He's the God of truth. He's the God who takes sin really seriously and really personally. He takes false teaching really seriously and really personally. He sees it as destructive for what he loves and who he loves. He takes it with the utmost seriousness. And you may have a hard time with this about God. You may read the Bible and passages like this and say, man, God just needs to lighten up. He just needs to chill out. What's his big deal? Can't he just chill a little bit with all this judgment and destruction of the wicked? What's, man, he's just overboard. That may be how you feel about the God you find in the Bible. But I want to ask you this. Don't you feel a sense of justice? Don't you hate injustice, especially when it affects you? When it affects you directly? Don't you feel indignant even with minor slights to your dignity? Don't, don't you? I, I can't believe how angry I can get about minor things, trivial things. So... Several times a day sometimes, I go down Biola Avenue in La Mirada, and if you don't know it, it's an, it's an intersection where you meet Imperial Highway, and there's a light there. And there's, there's about 100 yards or 200 yards over a ridge before somebody gets to this light. And I can take a right turn on red if that person's taking a right. I, I can go. But you know what they need to do for me to be able to do that? They need a signal, right? They need to let me know because they're hauling down Imperial Highway and if they don't signal, I need to wait for them. And sometimes there's a whole line of cars and I'm thinking, I wonder if any of these are turning right, but sometimes one, two, three, four, five cars will take a right and not one of them signaled. Not one of them cared about me at all. Now, one of them might have thought he might need to get to a meeting. On time. He might be running late. It might be really helpful to save him 40 seconds and, and, and signal. Let him know that. Oh, it's, Southern California is hot. It's the worst place I've ever been in the world for people not signaling. It's like, dude, whatever. <laughs> signal, signal. I go like this. I, I go, I go. Right, this is what you needed to do. Hey, come back here. I get so angry. And it's so trivial, relatively speaking, right? If I get so ticked off about a, a little inconsiderate slight, how about a holy God? Year after year, day after day, millennia after millennia of a human race, he made for his glory, ignoring him, disrespecting him, not just slighting him, but hating him, telling him he has no rights over them, that he's not the king. We're the little kings running around with our puny little crowns. We run the show. Imagine. His patience, don't be stymied by his anger, by his justice. Marvel at his patience. Be amazed. He's so grateful, uh, uh, gracious, and we need to be grateful for that. I think it's very ethnocentric to, to have a hard time with the wrath of God. Why do I say that? Because in our environment, not one of us has had a father beheaded because he trusted Jesus. Not one of us has had a pastor dragged off and shot because he believed Jesus. Maybe if we had those kinds of experiences, we would find the comfort that we're, we're expected to find in this passage this morning. And every other time God's justice is preached in the Bible, every time God's justice is preached, the people of God are supposed to say, okay, I can hold on. 
The judge is coming. I I don't have to take vengeance in my hands. I I don't need to see it all right right now, even though I don't know why he's taking so long to bring justice. See, that's the biblical perspective, not chill out, God, but Lord, how much longer? How much longer do we have to wait before you bring justice? That's the biblical perspective. I think that's the perspective of most people in human history, except our little culture that has been relatively so safe from persecution. And so, so it, it's, it's a right thing. I, I couldn't imagine living in a world where there wouldn't be justice someday. Are you okay with that? Are you really okay with a world where God's not going to bring justice once and for all one day? I couldn't live in a world that didn't have that day awaiting. And so that's who God is. He's the God of truth who hates all sin and evil. He's a God who's active. I I want you to notice that he doesn't just judge the teaching, he judges the teachers. It's talking about them even more than their teaching in this chapter. Let's not think that false teaching is something out there independent of the people teaching it. It's not the teaching ultimately that's judged, it's the teachers. We're responsible. Sin and error comes from the human heart. And unhelpful cliches like love the sinner, hate the sin, I don't think get us where we need to go. God opposes the proud, not pride, some concept out there, and gives grace to the humble, a person. And unless we get that, we'll never get that Jesus was the humble person who took our place. We'll never get to the fact that he's the righteous one. Uh, did Did you hear how clearly he denounces these teachers and not just the teaching? We read in verse four that he casts these demons into hell. He, he committed them to, to gloomy uh, chains and darkness. He brought the flood very personally. We talk about God's justice sometimes like it's this impersonal process that comes about because God created things and, and they have certain laws that then kick into gear. And he's sort of watching from the background saying, oh man, they chose wrong. Uh, no, he's very involved, very active, very personally affected by these things and personally responding to these things. He's very involved. He brings their destruction. And the reason, we're told, his destruction is not asleep. Their destruction is not asleep. In verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep is because God never slumbers or sleeps. The reason their destruction is sure is because God's presence as judge is sure. And so, Who is God? He's a God who hates sin and evil and a God who actively responds to it. So four, what's the result of this false teaching? It's swift and certain judgment. Did you notice there are no commands in this passage? There there are no instructions in this passage that we read. All of chapter two has no commands, no instructions. It's very impractical in that sense, but it couldn't be more practical because what it does is give us a picture of where false teaching leads And the implications should be obvious. The implications for our lives should be completely obvious. Angels were judged. Those in Noah's day were judged. Those in Sodom and Gomorrah were judged. And did you hear how black and white the language was? You've got the righteous and the unrighteous. You've got the godly and the ungodly. This does not mean those who have aligned themselves with God and his ways are godly and righteous in themselves. But what it does mean is they've committed their ways to God's ways and his righteousness. And they're depending on Jesus to provide that for them. And it's made a radical difference in the entire orientation of their lives. Their lives will never be the same. Now, they are in the company of the saints, the the godly, the righteous. And that, as we said, comes by faith, not what we accomplish. So, how should we respond? How should we respond? The way God does. We should hate false teaching. We should hate the immorality that flows from it. Sin and evil and false teaching should really bother you. Like Lot. Listen to how Lot is described in verse 7. Did you see it? Listen to the description of Lot. He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. He's a righteous man. And 
what effect did this sensual conduct have? It tormented his soul. Obviously, the way Peter is tormented by the false teaching and the sinful living in this context, it tortured his soul. It's like when Paul comes to Athens and he sees that the city is filled with idols. Remember it says about his heart? It's greatly distressed. It bothers him. He's not used to it. It it greatly distresses him. Sin and evil and false teaching should really bother you. And if it doesn't bother you, you'll never see your need to be freed from it yourself and you'll never run to your Savior the way you need to and you'll never find the forgiveness you need because God's justice was poured out on his son. And it's in him we find freedom from the justice we all deserve, the wrath we all deserve, the condemnation and destruction we all deserve is poured out on Jesus on a cross and we go to him when we realize how bad our sin is and where false teaching has led us. Truth and error and sin is really serious. And I talk to people sometimes and they talk about how tolerant they are and how patient they are and how gracious they are. And sometimes I have a sneaking suspicion they're not really those things I think they just don't really care. It's easy to be tolerant when you don't really care about evil. That's not tolerance. That's not respect. That's just not caring. Do you care? Do you care that every single day in the United States, as many humans are killed before they're born as died on September 11th? Does that bother you? Does that concern you that in our culture, the, the weakest, the, the least able to defend themselves, the poorest among us are killed? 3,000 a day about? Almost a million a year in our country? Does that bother you? It, does it bother you when you walk around on your way to get lunch that this city's filled with idols? They're, they're harder to recognize than those in Athens because they're idols of the heart that show up in things like materialism and, and, and judging people and valuing people based on superficial things. Does it bother you that we live in a world that's idolatrous even though it looks so subtle? We need to be able to recognize idols when we see them. That God is not being worshipped in Fullerton in the way he should be. Does that bother you? Do you want to do something about that? Are you driven by a desire that God be honored and worshipped the way he should be instead of the worship of idols being so prevalent? This takes courage. It takes real courage to hate evil and sin and denounce it in this way. Oh, yes, with grace, with patience, with with killing off all the self-righteousness that can so easily be there when we take God's perspective in this. It takes courage. But as Richard Baxter said, we need to preach as dying men to dying men. People are dying. We're all dying. Do you realize that? And if we don't trust Christ, there's hell to pay when we do. And so we need to hate it and out of that strongly denounce both false teachers and false teaching. You know, the the health wealth gospels, the prosperity preachers, those are easy targets, I think. They're so obviously wrong. To say that if you're a Christian, you'll be healthy and wealthy, and if you're not, you must lack faith is an evil lie. And we need to denounce that and the extravagant and moral lifestyles that so many of those preachers live. Those are easy targets, but the more subtle things are, are when we come into the Christian context and we don't teach the whole truth. We don't teach judgment as well as grace. We don't teach holiness and justice as well as patience and compassion. We so selectively choose what we talk about, what we emphasize. Jesus says that the truth will set us free. And the truth is found in Christ. And belief in error will destroy you. So if you love people, you care deeply, they don't believe error. And this is true of leaders especially. Leaders like, like some of us, in there, quite a few of us in this room are leaders of the church. We need to feel the responsibility to be able to see false teaching because we so know the truth and be able to reject it, call it out, critique it, denounce it. That's a major job of leaders of God's people. Jude 3 says this, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Paul, when he tells the Ephesian elders that those from their own midst are going to not spare the flock with their false teaching, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and the flock. The church is the pillar and buttress of truth. We've got to know and love and live the truth of God. 
so we can answer the question, am I being obedient to Jesus today? And so how then do we live? We live hating false teaching, denouncing false teachers, preaching the truth, all of it, because it is what will set us free. And we look to Christ and his coming judgment and we let that frame our entire lives. The fact that Jesus is coming back should bring holy fear. It should bring a reverence, a, a desire for holiness in our lives. That's the purpose of these teachings, that, that people will be in terror of that and flee to Christ and those who have fled to Christ will live holy lives. We won't think we are our own masters. But it should also bring confidence in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We need reminders of what's true every day. We need to get in the word. We need to gather like this to get in the word together so we see what's true. We need to realize that we do have everything we need for life and peace and grace and godliness in the knowledge of God in Christ. Faith leads us to freedom and changed lives and changed heads and changed hearts and changed everything. We flee from lies and sin that destroy us and we go to Jesus and his righteousness and depend on him for everything. He bought us. Isn't it amazing? Kenny pointed this out to me this week. It's so good to collaborate when you're in the word. He said, isn't it amazing that when Peter's denouncing these leaders, he uses the same verb to describe what they've done that he so clearly did three times toward Jesus. He denied the master who bought him. But Peter has moved to the point where he is not denying his master anymore. He's submitting to him so he can now even call out those who are doing the very thing he did. So he's not doing it in self-righteousness as if he somehow made himself righteous or godly or one of God's. No, he realizes that he was bought with a price by his master and he answers to him now. And that's the bottom line. Do we see Jesus because he bought you with a price as your master? Does it affect everything in your life now? Your dependence on him is everything. So we turn from self and sin to Jesus and his righteousness and faith. And now everything's different. Everything's changed. And we live lives so radically different of holiness and purity and obedience to our master because he bought us. He did everything we needed for him to do. And so the, the ultimate focus is not even on the false teaching and denying what's sinful. It's on Jesus and what he's done for us. And he's the master now. And everything falls into line in purity and holiness and righteousness now in the way we live day to day. Let's pray. Lord, help us to live day to day depending on Jesus and not ourselves. Lord, would you give us a, a growing hatred for false teaching, for lies. We know who the father of lies is, Satan. And we know that every time we fall into that line, uh, we fall into representing him. So Lord, help us to hate false teaching. Help us to love the truth. Help us to love the God, you, who is the God of truth. And Lord, help us to live lives of holiness and righteousness, knowing that we've been bought with a price. And our master now calls the shots. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.